first thing I noticed was your last name, Yafi, Hebrew. Yes? Yes. 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 It means beautiful in Hebrew. Is that a family parent, family husband? How did you get that name? Parent. It's actually, I have a very bizarre uh, name situation where um, my, this is complicated. So my maiden name is Badnock. And so my, um, I was That's born. That's a horrible name. I know it's Scottish. I'm I was so sorry. Na- I mean, I apologize to your parents, but like, that's a <laughs> I was name. born Jennifer Marie Badnock, and my parents got divorced when I was young, and my mom remarried Jimmy Yaffe. And when I was getting close to getting married, I legally changed my middle name from Marie to Yaffe. So then I was Jennifer Yaffe Badnock, and I like framed the change of name certificate for him and he cried and it was beautiful and then I because he raised me and then I um even though I started a relationship with my dad so anyway Jennifer Yaffe Badnock then I got married and I was Jennifer Yaffe Schwartz and then when I got divorced I didn't want to go all the way back to Badnock so I just dropped Schwartz and now I'm Jennifer Yaffe which is a name I never had before and also I don't have a middle name but I'm taking suggestions I can choose whatever I want uh, there's absolutely no need. As a matter of fact, I've had this discussion with my wife. Like in the Czech Republic, they don't have middle names. Period. Hmm. Like they just don't use middle names. It's not a thing. I kind of I'm flexible, you know. Like sometimes for a while, I'm like maybe it'll be like Rainbow, and then one of my one friends decided it should be Francesca, and so I went with that for a little bit. But generally, I have no middle name. It's just Jennifer Yaffe. It's fine. But now a lot of the story of your life makes a little bit more sense because I was looking at the name of the gallery that you used to run yes. and I was like, who's Schwartz? Yes, that was me for 15 years. Okay. And then uh, and then I s- still me, just different name. That is one of those odd difficulties that women have that men don't have. Like we don't mm-hmm. change our names generally. Some of us can choose to, but, but generally don't. But women have, sometimes do change their names and that's sometimes professionally a bit questionable because like you can't build a reputation on your name if your name changes. Yeah, it's true. And it's also like when you're going through a divorce, you don't want to make this like big announcement like, hey, let me t- let me tell you what's happening with me and why my name is. I just changed it and just eventually people figured it out. I would go with it's pretty obvious, I think. But I guess if it, I had never heard the name Jaffe in your presence before, it wouldn't have been a bit random at first. Uh, yeah, so here I am, Jennifer Yaffe. All right, so a little bit of background on you. So like you do, you are a photographer, a publisher, you've run a nonprofit, you've written a book, you have, let's see, run an art gallery. What else have you done that I'm unaware of? Let's see. I did a, um, I had a company where I, um, with a, a co-founder where we ran retreat programs for photographers for a while for several years and that was fun we published a few books with that as well but that's the general gist at a gallery oh i used to have a um portrait photography business like a family portrait photography business in atlanta for years and years um which helped fund the gallery since it's less uh profitable i'm sorry which is less less profitable (laughs) a gallery is less profitable more enjoyable, but a lot of work. And um, yeah, so the gallery, and I got really interested in arts engagement. So like, how do you get people that aren't buying art 
to buy art and to value it and to want to collect it and um, have a connection with the individual artists. And that's how I started doing all these programs at the gallery that was really, that was the focus. Um, and then, you know, getting people in the door, getting them interested, having them meet the artists in unique ways and ways that felt less threatening maybe. And then that um, spurred this ridiculous idea that like, oh, well, this is great that I'm getting people to come to me, but what about people that aren't, isn't on their radar? How can I reach them? And so I did a Kickstarter, like in the early days of a Kickstarter before when artists knew what it was and were already kind of sick of it, but regular people didn't know. And so I was did a Kickstarter to raise money to buy a Volkswagen bus. And so artists were kind of like, what? And my parents' friends were like, you want us to give you money to buy a car? And I was like, kind of, but I'll send you a postcard. It's a really cool car. Yeah, yeah. It it'll break down every day. Um but it looks adorable in the logo and But it can be fixed with a wrench and duct tape. If I was a mechanic. Yes. But really you bought people. a VW bus and you couldn't even repair. I mean, those are so yeah. easy to repair. I don't even repair yeah. cars and I can repair that car. Well, I should have brought you along for the ride then. <laughs> Did it break down a lot? Yes, almost every day. Um, it was just a, a series of miracles that we got from one place to the other and the kindness of mechanics. Um, and then, yeah, so I did this bus tour and where I was like, why don't, instead of trying to get people to come to me, I can go out, I can go out there. And we did 10 different cities where we did pop-up exhibitions with um, local artists and gave away photography and then um, came back and closed the gallery and turned that one project into a nonprofit organization called Crusade for Art that I ran for four or five years. And the main um, initiative was a $10,000 grant that we would give to the most innovative, for the most innovative idea to connect new audiences with art. And I started publishing. I did the retreats also in that time. It was very busy. It was very photo-focused and busy and wonderful. And um, now I'm just publishing, which I love. It's kind of like the best parts of all of the things that I've enjoyed, you know, like kind of helping artists get their work out, um, making something beautiful, being a part of that, um, working with artists that I'm really inspired by and love, um, and building those relationships and less of the stuff that I didn't like, like throwing a party, you know, an opening every six weeks and hanging things on walls and trying to sell pieces to people that don't want it but should. All right. Well, our lives seem to be sort of very similar in many ways because I used to run a public arts program where we did public sculptures because oh, wow. I was in the thought of the idea that basically people don't have art in their lives. So let's put it into their life. So like mm -hmm. we literally put like, you know, steel sculptures, but we did them as temporary things because the community didn't really know what it wanted kind of thing. They didn't know what fit and all this kind of stuff. And so the idea was to educate them to like what kind of a sculptural thing would end up fitting there. And in the end, 
after I left the program, the program continued on. And after that, they actually, the city ended up buying a bunch of sculptures and permanently installing them. Oh, that's so so wonderful. Yeah. I mean, like after I left, it succeeded. (laughs) (laughs) That that seems to be like the thread of my career is basically (laughs) I start off some really cool thing. And then once I leave it, it becomes successful. Uh (laughs) Yeah. You're an activator. Is that a good thing or a bad thing? That's a good thing. It's a great great. thing. I'm all for it then. So (laughs) what about running a 501c3? Because uh, mine was also a nonprofit. Um, So what were your experiences with that? It was a lot of um, work. Um, I don't like raising money. So it kind of... I don't like asking for money. I don't like asking for money. So I think that if I had to do it over again... I don't know if the advantages outweighed the disadvantages, you know, having to have a board and um, have all of the governance and trying to ask people for money when we could have just sold something and it would have been easier, I think. But um, and then getting the 501c3 status and all of that paperwork was a whole a whole adventure. Yeah, I see. I didn't have problems with getting the status and even keeping the status. My biggest problem was I didn't learn. I didn't even learn. Nobody told me until like about seven years in that like, oh, it's all about your board. Your board has to be like active. And I was like, oh, because like I just got like a passive board. I was just like, I just need some people legally on the document. Right, right. (laughs) And that was a horrible mistake. Yeah, it's, and I found that, what I was doing specifically was just really hard to um, fundraise for, to ask money for, you know, like in people like the idea of, yes, there should be more art collectors and people should value art. But in the hierarchy of things that people want to give away their personal money to, it's like, that's a nice idea. But we could have done print sales or, you know, something that would have raised the money faster, easier, probably than me asking people one off for like $500 or a thousand dollars for something that they were kind of giving the people that gave kind of gave cause they liked me, not because it was like a bit, you know, and that's a lot of pressure too. And a lot of lunches, so many lunches, coffees and being charming and smiling a lot. It was hard. It is. It's exhausting sometimes to like be mm-hmm. a show pony in, in any mm-hmm. version of the arts, like whether it's being the artist at an art opening or whether it's being somebody asking for money for your nonprofit. It's, that's the one part I, I I wish we could find a way to not have in the arts anymore. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I mean, I, honestly, it's like a, you know, a part about publishing that I really love. It's much more behind the scenes and um, other than sitting at a book fair, that's a whole other whole other thing <laughs> feel, feel free to share stories of book fairs well it's just sitting for a really long time and occasionally you'll have a great conversation or someone comes up and they're actually asking questions about the books but nine times out of ten it's an artist that walks right up looks you in the eye and says i have a book that i want to get published are you interested and i'm like at least look down flip through the books, you know, maybe buy one, like buy me dinner first, you know, like don't just come up like, oh, tell me about your publishing imprint because I might want to get my book published. I'm like, oh, would you? 
(laughs) Am I auditioning for you right now? Like, can you move out of the way? Someone might want to buy something. (laughs) You're blocking my table. It's a story I hear all too many times, whether it's an art fair, a book fair, whatever, where basically a lot of it is is people going there trying to do something for their benefit instead of something for your benefit. And it's just like, ugh. Don't get me wrong. I did that when I was a kid. And I, you know, because we think that that's the easiest access to these people. And I, I appreciate someone saying like, oh, I have a bunch of these books. This one's my favorite. This is what I like, you know, like flatter me. I'm good with that. But to come up and ask me, oh, tell me about your publish. What kind of books do you publish? And what do you, you know, like there's the internet. There's a table right in front of you. (laughs) Feel free to peruse. Yeah. Yeah. So that's, um, that's an annoying piece of it. And I mean, I get it, but it's also like, it's not a thoughtful approach. Indeed. Now I want to take a step back though. Like, so looking at your CV, you have a BA in psychology an MA in counseling. How Mm -hmm. did you get into the arts? (laughs) Because artists are crazy. (laughs) Fair. No, that's fair. uh, Yeah. Okay. Now, I um I've always been into art and um honestly it's um been such a bizarre you know and I think I told you too my um my day job is in strategy and branding and so it kind of in a way they all connect in my mind but it's a little bit harder to grasp from the outside I think you know I love thinking about how people think and how they approach the world and what they're interested in and how to um, communicate with them in a way that will resonate. So that's the strategy piece. That's the branding piece. That's the part about um, my art experience of like starting and running for arts businesses or nonprofits that I loved, you know, kind of that thinking and, you know, who's the audience and who am I trying to connect to? And also in in helping artists work through that problem too, you know, like what is your work? Who's the most likely person to appreciate it and want to buy it, you know, and kind of thinking, you know, how can you reach those people? What connection points do you have to them already? What barriers do you need to get around, you know, do you have to get around to getting them? And so um, all of that connects and all of that is really related to like the psychology and counseling piece too, just kind of putting yourself in the shoes of um, the other person. Well, these days, more I feel like more so than, let's say, any time in the past, artists have to be better, more efficient strategists, marketers, and business people, more so than we ever have. Like All of my professors and all the people I knew when I was young who were artists and creative and stuff, they were generally stoners and, and just sort of like let their gallery or their representative do all their stuff, and they just sort of lived this you know bohemian lifestyle. Whereas now we have to be strategists and marketers and business people yeah. and, and in, a, in a much more uh, fast paced and sort of very important way. And I don't like it. <laughs> <laughs> Most artists don't like it. It's a lot. I mean, it's a completely different skill set than the creative part. It's the reason I chose not to be in it. <laughs> right. Be in business. Sure. That's right. Um, Yeah, I get that. And I think, too, you know, a lot of artists think like, oh, if I just get a gallery, they'll do that for me. Or if I'll get a publisher, they'll do that for me. And Not anymore. They may have in the past, but they won't anymore. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's 
and just navigating social media and how much work do you put out there and not and how much do you hold back and um there's a lot i mean it's you're a personal brand and there's a lot that goes into that you know it's funny we, when i was in school my teachers used to always use the term reputation it's all about mm-hmm. your reputation which i believe now can be easily translated to the idea of being a brand mm-hmm. but in the arts we don't like using the word brand because it sounds sellout corporate-y all kinds right. of things that are the antithesis of what we are right but it's basically the same thing <laughs> it is and i mean i think um you know it doesn't mean that it's it has to be or should be fake you know like i think that if you are your authentic self and you put that out into the world that is your brand i mean it's just it's your reputation it's your the impression that people have of you but because it's so easy to look into other people's lives i mean it used to be you know before social media before the internet you know like you'd go to a gallery and you'd see people's work on the wall like you don't think about the artists that are creating it, you know, like you don't think about the person behind the work. And now it's like the person's first, you know, the artist is first. And then, and then you see what they're putting out in the world. (laughs) And so it's, um, it's a different, it's a different thing. And it's just about being yourself is hopefully yourself isn't an asshole. But um, even if it is, that's some people like that, I guess. Um, But, you know, it's, People, I guess also it's because we are used to even like celebrities and I mean, everyone that's in the public eye in any way, you kind of get to know more about them as a person, not just like the character they play on your favorite TV show or the book that they wrote or the piece of art that they created. And so people are looking for that type of connection with the artists, not just an individual piece of work no and it's interesting i mean i'm not saying i'm against it but like to a certain extent like ironically since i run a podcast and share way too much about my private life (laughs) i'm kind of a private person like i don't really want people knowing like everybody has like a facade that they put up a little bit and and unfortunately i think that like social media has taken it too far i think now it's curated perfect lives you know Mm -hmm. even artists in their studios their perfect careers kinds of things that is not the reality of it i don't think and so like I have no problem with showing all my problems, faults, and foibles through a, a podcast because those are that's sort of like me. But th- like showing pictures of my mistakes and my foibles, <laughs> and like, somehow I'm not okay with that. Uh huh. Yeah, I mean, it's. Um, I wonder too if you know we we humans um, Americans for sure. But um, when I was doing the art stuff. And when I was doing the nonprofit of like trying to get people to connect to art, you know, a barrier about people, young people buying art was that they didn't feel like they were educated enough about art to buy it. So they felt like, well, I don't have an art history degree. I don't really know what I'm looking at. And, you know, I could say, just get what you love. Like you want to just look at it and feel something. But then they were like, how do I know it's worth this amount of money? And, you know, but a substitute for that knowledge gap was meeting the artist. So having or 
having a personal connection with the artist and being like, oh, I talked to the artist and they told me the story behind this work. Or in substitution, the gallery owner told me about the artist and the story behind this work. And then maybe they start following that person on social media and they feel like they have a connection to them and it makes them comfortable buying the art. And so I do think that there is an advantage there in terms of, you know, as an artist of, you know, sharing yourself and being authentic and putting, you know, the stories behind the pieces. I actually just bought um, an Alex, so, you know, the Magnum print sale that they do, the square prints that are like $100. And um, I don't have any of Alex Soth's work. um, And I really admire it. And I just interviewed him on the podcast. And and so anyway, I saw this um, piece. And published a book of his. I didn't publish a book of his. You didn't? I could have sworn I saw you did. Okay, maybe I saw it as the podcast. I would like to. Everybody would like to. He's delightful. He is so wonderful. So um, anyway, I saw on Instagram that, you know, he posted about this photo that he had for sale in the Magnum print sale and he told the story behind it. And I was like, oh, I mean, I loved the image and I've liked it for a long time. It's from Sleeping by the Mississippi. But hearing for me even, and I know a lot about art, but hearing the story behind that photo was what made me buy it ultimately. I'll tell you, I had this million dollar idea. Well, it's not really a million dollar idea, but I had this podcast idea that I was going to do a thing like what you're talking about, like a story behind a piece, like find an individual piece of art and a living Mm -hmm. artist and have them tell just the story of that one piece of art. So like a nice little short form, 10, 15 minute little story. That's the whole podcast and that's it. So like one piece of art, a living artist tells the story. There you go. I like that. It would be neat. Yeah, that'd be yeah, a I good way to <laughs> to do the get back into the perfect bound because I'd be like, these are short segments, so I could wrap my head around it. Well, it's an interesting idea because, like, a lot of times, you know, there'll be some famous thing that's got you know, it's sort of taken on a life of its own in mm-hmm. the world, but mm-hmm. there might be some completely different story, or maybe that is the story. I don't know. And so, like, hearing the reality of the what that one single image that is maybe like the iconic thing of a particular artist, yeah. It, you know the story behind it you know either behind it from before behind uh, behind it as far as like how did it become this thing that became your iconic whatever but like a nice little short form thing but focused on just one image mm-hmm, i love that please don't steal it i just you know no you been, do it been, been holding on to it for a while <laughs> <laughs> it's all you you got okay this. Good. okay lovely. <laughs> i'm kidding anybody i mean it's not some unique idea but anyways Going back to your publishing stuff, mm-hmm. one thing I really do love about your publishing house is it is it a house? Would that, would that be the right term? Sure. sure. Imprint. Okay. I don't know. I don't Imprint. know what the difference, and then I don't know under what the nomenclature is. What do you call it? Just Joffrey Publishing. Joffrey Press. Yeah, just Joffrey publishing. Press. Okay, Press. Mm-hmm. We'll go with Press. Mm-hmm. So the um, the one thing I do actually really love about it is the price points um, because all too many artist books are extraordinarily expensive and like I mean as much as I love any particular artist or even you know buy as much as I can from a particular press because I like what they produce kind of thing a lot of them are really expensive and I like yeah. that you seem to keep yours uh, I think the most was like $50 
Yeah, most of them are um, like between 35 and 50. It's hard, though. I mean, especially I have some books coming out that are big and size and page count, and they cost a ton of money to make. So as I just uh, applaud you for this, you're like, yeah, but I'm about yeah. to come out with ex more expensive yeah. stuff. Don't get used to it. No, I mean, I think it's important to have a range. And I mean, it's also like the material costs are so high. It's so expensive to make a book. And, um, and so, and a lot of times we price it based on like what it looks like it should be, not necessarily what it cost you know like there's you know if this is a soft cover and it's only you know this many pages and whatever like we're just going to charge thirty dollars for it even though this is actually really expensive to make because it's got these special things in it and whatever whatever you know but like the size and the material you know it makes it seem like well it would be hard. We want to make we want to sell them. We want people to have them. You know, part of the we're not nobody's making money anyway. So the whole point is just to get books in front, you know, in as many people's hands as possible. So try to do a price point that makes sense for that. I mean, that's one of those things that a lot of people have a horrible misunderstanding and misconceptions about the thinking that like book publishing is some like great money making scheme. It's really not. And it, it, I mean, outside of maybe some of the big publishing houses kind of thing. But like when you're talking boutique ones such as yourself, which I say is a compliment, please don't take that in any negative way. No, but like a boutique press, like they're basically happy if they're breaking even because there's just not a lot of like, uh, like profit margin yeah oh no not at all i mean not at all did i just got an invoice today for a book that i just that's staggering staggering from the printer like mortgage your house staggering i mean it's so much money and that doesn't even include like the you know the designer and the distribution and you know order for like all pr like all of this other and you know costs associated with getting it out okay but wait let's go back a step because i want to hear a little bit more about some of the logistics i love these like nut and bolt logistics about like publishing of stuff sure when you pr publish a book what quantity do you publish in that is depends so the smallest i'll do is 250 and that's what I, the triptychs that i um, make and those are digitally printed in the US. So, um, but if I'm printing offset, which is in Europe somewhere, usually in the Netherlands, it's um, a you, the I think the smallest I would do is 300 or 350, and the most I've done, I think, is a thousand. Well, because I mean, even like the quote unquote sort of like best places to print, which is best is subjective based on quality and price and all that kind of stuff. It changes a lot. Like, because like at one point in my career, I, I remember Turkey was like the best place to print. And yeah, then France I printed was in really Turkey. Amazing. Mm -hmm. I printed in Korea, Turkey, Spain, Netherlands, and the US. I've always found the US to be the most expensive. <laughs> Oh, it's insane. Yeah, it's I mean, it's I only would I only print digitally in the US and the binding you can't do hardcover. But um, in the Netherlands, the um, the binderies are so good. And the, yeah, I've had really, it's been between Spain and Netherlands, um, the last couple of years, kind of alternating, but it keeps skewing more towards Netherlands. It's fascinating how that changes geographical locations so much. I, I mean, I wonder if there's like some legal like 
tax things or, or customs things that sort of make it easier and cheaper in certain places versus others kinds of things? Yeah, I don't know. I have a friend that prints um, a lot of his books in Lithuania. I mean, there's, and um, sometimes he, you know, publishers bid it out to a bunch of different people, or it's like, okay, this printer I know does great black and white work, you know, like Duotone. And then, like, I've printed a couple of books in Italy, forgot about that one, um, mostly Duotone work. And then it's like, well, this one has this special kind of paper or they can't, this one can do this special design thing that I want and this one can't, you know, for, so. For anybody listening who don't don't know what duotone is, that would be equivalent to like black and white, two color. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, yes. Giving some jargon just in case people don't know. <laughs> um, so, so yeah, it just depends and, and it's expensive, but it's beautiful and I love it. I call it like my super expensive hobby, essentially. So it's like my second full-time job that I hope at the end of the year I break even. And I spend an enormous amount of time doing. Yeah, but it's, it's time that makes you happy mostly. So happy. So happy. Mostly so happy. More happy than unhappy. True. True. I have been to have a lot of books all coming out at once right now. So it's been really stressful for many months. You know, things that um, like either the artists got delayed because of COVID, you know, like kind of put a halt on them making the work um, or uh, material delays or shipping delays. And it's just this perfect storm of like, I have four advanced copies of books sitting on my counter that are in some stage of on a boat coming you know so they're all gonna get here like around the same time which is a lot to get out in the world and then you know a couple of others that are like designed and about to go to press or yeah but it's just gonna be a and then like I can't commit to anything coming up because I'm so overwhelmed with the number of books I have now and then I'm gonna be like oh wait I got nothing in the pipeline <laughs> oops well, I mean, and that's another thing that's like a lot of the difficulty of doing something like this. But I mean, even even just being a creative artist, like when you put something out into the world, you already have to be working on the next thing. Like you can't just sit on your laurels and be like, okay, those are done. Marvelous. Yes. <laughs> Ta-da. Right. No, you, already, you have to be working on planning for thinking about the next things because like to a certain extent, just like you were talking about like social media and branding and stuff like you have to maintain that brand. So you have to be perpetually bringing things out on some regular schedule, you know, yearly, quarterly. I don't know how frequently you do it. How frequently do you publish a book? I don't have a set schedule or... It just is, has been kind of organically as things have come together, which is how this happened. <laughs> um, but I think I've been publishing like six to 10 books a year. That's a lot. I know. I would like it, I think, to be like two to four, ideally. <laughs> yeah, that's a lot of books. Yeah, I get excited. I like see something and I'm like, oh my God, I can do it. I can do it. I can fit it in. It's amazing. Um, but I, I need to slow my roll. Well, which begs the question, which of course all creative people want to know is like, how do you make the decision of what to publish versus what not to publish? 
Uh, there are many factors. First, I um, I take submissions on the website or, you know, email people email me submissions. And I do, I review them like kind of quarterly and I do respond to every person. So that's time consuming. <laughs> um, but I really, I do look at everything. Um, a lot of times, sometimes it's work that I'm just seeing out in the world and I'm really drawn to. And so I'll approach an artist. Sometimes um, an artist comes to me like through a recommendation of, you know, somebody else that I've published or another publisher that liked the work but can't take it on. So they refer them to me. And so, I mean, just like with anything else, if someone that I really admire and care about is recommending, I tend to take a harder look at that. Um, and especially if it's someone that I've worked with and that I've loved working with. Um, and then in terms of like the final decision, it comes down to a few different things. Honestly, like one of the huge things for me is just the personal connection. Like I don't want to work with assholes or people that are going to be difficult pain in my butt. Um, because it's, again, I'm not, I'm literally not getting paid to do this. I'm in most cases <laughs> paying, you know, like I'm, um, it's a lot of time and energy. And like you said, I, it's, I do it because it makes me happy. Well, it doesn't make me happy to work with someone that sucks. So. Okay. But wait, I want to differentiate a little thing there. Being an asshole, that's a personality trait. Totally mm -hmm. understand that. I was a bit of an arrogant little shit in my youth. I think I've become a little nicer. But the other part of being difficult, what mm -hmm. constitutes like being a difficult person to work with? Because like being an asshole is one thing, but being hard to work with is a different sure. thing. Yeah. Yeah. Being an asshole is a hard line barrier. I'm not interested. I don't Fair. I don't want any assholes in my life, period. Difficult to work with. Um, I think that, so I could be more specific and say, it's really important for me to be collaborative with the artist. So if someone's like, this is how I want it and this is the only way, like, I'm not interested in working. I'm not interested in like taking orders and just shipping something off. You know, the, I want it to be collaborative. I want, you know, us to come work together to come up with the best ideas and iterate and, um, and kind of, you know, be creative together, um, whether that's me and the artist or the designer and the artist or all three of us. Um, so that's important. And I think, yeah, so someone that's um, like just open, open-minded, um, you know, like wants and is appreciative of all of this work, that's helpful too. Um, you know, not like an entitled kind of like, you're my publisher and you got to do blah, 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 blah. Like that doesn't really feel good. That well, that good. is the traditional idea of it. Like, I mean, back in the day, you know, if an artist was at such a point in their career that they were having a book published, it was often that the publisher like wanted them so badly that they could be sort of demanding and all this. But these days with all these sort of boutique presses and all these great presses around, like you can be more sort of playful with it and more fun with it and more experimental with it than ever in the past. Because I mean, in the past it was, coffee table books 
And, right. And so like they they were they were things that were produced to fill up a coffee table and to like stand the test of time kind of thing. Whereas now they're like you like as an artist, like I've done books in my career and I love making books because the, you can be so much more playful. You don't have to do a huge body of work to create a book. It can be just like a fun little set of 15, 20 images and you're like done, cohesive idea, story. Yeah. And, and then move on. I love the the format of it. I think it's great, but it's a, still a hard format to work in because part of it is like, it's great to find a publisher such as yourself, collaborate, do all that. And the hard part is how do you then get it to the buyers? That is hard. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, you know, p- publishing a book is a great a thing on your CV. It's a lovely thing to have in your portfolio. Lovely to have a book produced. I mean, it's you know one of those great milestones in most creative people's lives. But the point of them is, is you really want to get them into the hands of people, and that is the huge difficulty because, like, a lot of people are doing like self-publishing, but they don't mm-hmm. really understand the fact that like self-publishing is great. You have the book physically; that's marvelous. But how do you get it from your garage to people's homes? Yeah, yes, and that's when you need a personal brand <laughs> and yeah. people that are following and, and you and interested in your work. Yeah, exactly, exactly. So, so what's something about like? What, do you work with distributors? I do. I have a distributor, um, which is new in the last couple of years, um, and. To be honest, it's a nightmare. I don't know if it's something that I want to continue doing. I mean, it's that's another thing that I think is incredibly um, miss. Uh, there's just a huge misconception about it with artists. So a lot of artists want to work with a publisher that has distribution. And it doesn't work like you think it works. You know, it doesn't mean that if your artist, that your publisher has a distributor, that your book is going to be in every bookstore around the world. It just isn't that way. Um, I, as the as the publisher, have to do an insane amount, an insane amount of work to get my books and their interior spreads and their metadata and keywords and basic codes and all of this input into the system for my distributor. I have to pitch the titles to the salespeople almost a year before they come out, um, which is uh, also not, you know, I don't, I haven't, I mean, there are times where I'm like, it's a book about this and that's about all we got right now. Um, So have to do all of that. And then those salespeople have to sell it to their people who want to, who are going to want to stock it in their bookstore. It's very, it's very haphazard. And then if they do and it sells, we get like $4 for the book, you know, like, so, but the amount that comes back to me as a publisher for sale is pennies on the dollar. So, and honestly, like their biggest buyer is Amazon. So the other way would just be to list it on Amazon myself and bypass a just an enormous amount of work um, and still not get that much money per book, but 
whatever. Um, so at this stage, honestly, I hope my distributor is not listening. You haven't mentioned their name, so that's good. It's basically like a really inconvenient warehousing option. It's like really great that when the books come in, they get sent to this warehouse in Tennessee instead of my super street steep residential driveway, which is always an issue. And I have more room in my garage for a second car. But other than that, it's kind of a shit show. And on the one hand, like, great, more artists are interested in publishing with me because I have this distribution, which is kind of bullshit. But I mean, I have it. But it's bullshit for everybody. It's not, you know, unique to me. Um, but I also don't want to keep up the pace of publishing this many books a year. So maybe it's a good uh, weeder out of. I mean, I think it's it's also just kind of the reality of like, like you said, I'm a boutique publisher. I'm only printing 300 or 500 copies of a book and I don't need a distributor. You know, like it's really just to make the artist feel better about things, but it's not. And I tell them that I'm like, I have a distributor, but it'll be listed on Amazon either way, you know. Well, you do know as a counselor that just like uh, stroking our egos and making us feel better is part of your job. Yeah, but it's also delivering hard truths. <laughs> The chances of you going to some small bookstore in Wichita and seeing your book, there are very, very slim. Unless you, I mean, and that's the other option, right? Like I can have a, I can create, and it would probably be better and maybe less time to like compile a list of booksellers around the U.S. specifically that sell art books and sell photography books and build relationships with them and send them, you know, examples like of a new title every time they come in. It wouldn't cost more money than what I'm getting paid now. And it wouldn't be more time. And then they could actually get into, you know, cooler places. I'm considering that. I mean, it's a hard one because like, you know, some of the best places in my mind, like if I were to think of like, okay, if I published a book, where would I want it to be? I would want it to be in museum gift shops. Mm -hmm. I think like that's the primo place where people buy art books. It is. And also most museum gift shops are not going to carry the books of emerging artists, which is what I'm publishing. You know, they're going to carry either the book of someone that's in the current exhibition or Ansel Adams and Edward Weston and, you know, like big name artists. So like the High Museum, which is local in Atlanta, they currently, well, they have one of my books because Alex Harris was just exhibited there and he's part of Picturing the South. But I went in the bookstore last month and they didn't have any in there. And no one's calling me saying, oh, we need more Alex Harris books. They're like, that exhibition's over. So there. I mean, it's so yes, it would be great to be in museum gift shops, but the likelihood of your book, you know, MoMA looking at my catalog and ordering any for their gift shop is zero because they don't know the artists. It's a hard balance. I mean, because you want you want to get that exposure 
through those kinds of opportunities, but you can't get those opportunities unless you get sort of like named artists. But the unnamed artists won't work with you until you have those opportunities available to. It's such a horrible cycle. Yeah. And, you know, um, the, and I can't offer what Steidl can, you know, like. Nobody can offer what Steidl can (laughs) offer, just to be clear. True. You know, and if one of my artists is in a museum show, those museums regularly reach out to me directly and say, we'd like to order books for our, you know, thing or galleries do if they have exhibitions coming. So there's really no benefit to having the distributor at that point. Yeah, I should just get rid of distribution. Thanks for helping me think this through. (laughs) I'm glad to be your sounding board. It's Mm -hmm, lovely. mm -hmm. Yeah. I'm glad the whole world's going to be able to hear. Well, it's actually nice to hear somebody sort of think through the logistics of of a choice because a lot of times all we hear about is the end decision, but we don't mm-hmm. hear about the rationale of why somebody chooses to do this or that. And I like hearing that kind of stuff because then it helps me to be a little bit more educated on some of the pros and cons of things that I might need to do the same ch- choice in the future. So thank you. And it feels kind of fake for me. You know, it's like, oh, I... I have a distributor, which was a lot of work to get it. So also when you get rid of it, that's a bad thing. I mean, I don't think you can go back. But, you know, it's like, oh, I want to be able to tell artists that I have distribution. And then I get into it and I'm like, oh, I can say it, but it's it's really not what they think it is, you know? Well, so moving forward, are there any sort of advice, sort of things that you can give to creative people to that desire to be part of the publishing machine (laughs) i don't know how better to put it like i don't want to like i don't want to downplay it because like i've got books that i'm still looking for publishers for which i'd be happy to send them to you but no (laughs) i'm totally sort of quarterly (laughs) i I respond to every submission yeah no i it's funny because like it's hard a lot of artists like like myself like i have probably if i said i'm going through my whole career i probably have like seven to nine books that i could produce but that the amount of effort just to even put it together into a proposal Mm -hmm. is really hard because you've got to not only put imagery together to propose to a publisher but you've also got to write some text which i i hate writing text that's a whole Mm -hmm. different issue in and of itself and so like that whole proposal of even trying to get a publisher to even find some interest in your work is an entire sort of sub industry in and of itself because that's hard. Yeah. And I mean for me I don't need a I'm not looking for a formal proposal like that. I don't like it when someone's like, "Hey, I'm a photographer and I'd love to make a book. Here's my Instagram if you want to check out some of my images." Okay, a little bit more context than that. Or if they say, "Look at my website." And I'm like, "What project specifically are you looking for but I also don't need like a fully designed you know pdf although I mean in some cases I'm like wow this is great this is like 80% of the way there and in some cases I'm like I really like the images but I don't like any of these design choices you know like are you open to like literally you know starting from the beginning um honestly I uh a lot of the projects or I would say a handful of the projects that I've taken on have been from doing some online portfolio reviews like during COVID. Um, 
where you're able to talk to the artist and you can see what that rapport is like and ask some questions in real time. Um, and so that's been a, that's honestly been, um, been a great thing. Um, and feels a little bit like you're kind of bypassing just a cold email stage of things. It's not quite a like recommendation from someone that you've worked with before, but it's, it's nice. Yeah. That cold email is horribly intimidating in so many ways. I mean, in every parts of our career, like, I mean, even you as a publisher, I'm sure you have to do cold emails to people, to people to, you know, have the books in their whatever kind of thing. Like, sure. Yeah. It's a daunting part of this career. Yes. Yeah. And it's hard to, in anything, it's hard to stand out when you're just sending a random cold email but um it's possible and i've definitely i mean i've picked up work that way but um yeah i and i would just say that you know doing research and figuring out like what publishers are what type of work they publish you know i mean there are i have a pretty wide aesthetic in terms of the type of work that i publish but other publishers are very specific you know, and you're wasting your time if you're sending them a book of botanicals and they only do like, you know, very conceptual, modern, you know, it's just not gonna be a fit. So, you know, like understanding that and trying to find a more personal connection in, I think would be probably the best way to go about it. Okay, and do not approach you at your booth at a book fair. I mean, if you bring gifts and um, buy a bunch of books and like flatter me a lot um, and have really great work and are awesome and not an asshole and easy to work with, um, I could see that working out. All right, well, lovely. Well, thank you very much for taking the time to chat. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. This has been so fun. It's fun to be the guest. Before you go, we would like to thank you for listening all the way to the end of the episode. We would also appreciate it if you would share the podcast with your friends, families, co-workers, and studio mates, anyone with an interest in the arts and creative industries. The building and strengthening of the arts and creative community both today and in the future is at the core of our mission for this podcast. You can listen, rate, and subscribe to this podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. We are produced by 5014, the audio was edited by Cush Audio Services, and the music was created by Pete Bybee. The Wise Fool Art Podcast is supported in part by an EEA grant from Iceland, Liechtenstein, and Norway, in an effort to work together for a green, competitive, and inclusive Europe. We would also like to thank our partners Hunt Kastner in Prague, Czech Republic, and Kunst Centrene in Norge in Norway. Links to EEA grants and our partner organizations are available in the show notes or on our website, wisefoolpod.com. Thank you.